Thank you for downloading the weekly sermon from Trinity Reformed Church in Bloomington, Indiana. To find more great content, please check out our website at trinityreformed.org. Enjoy the sermon. This is chapter 1, verses 17 to 24. Well, actually, just open to 2 Corinthians chapter 1. Uh, we have the wonderful privilege of being given the death of Adam. And it's a privilege because God is disciplining us, is growing us. And I'm sure that we all feel the growingness, right? (laughs) And God never loses suffering. He, he, He keeps track of it. And he gives it for a purpose. And so our suffering this morning is purposeful. And, you know, I can just tell you that I think I've told you before, I wish I would learn from simply being instructed, but I've never learned from being instructed. I have to be beaten. You know, I got to fail and then learn my lesson. And so I really do believe in pain. I think it's a wonderful teacher. And so we're together in our pain today. If you're not from this church, you're visiting, I'm sorry, but this is the reality of who we are today. And um, I wanted to say before we go to God's word to comfort us today, that uh, the, Max, did you already announce it? Okay. So the visitation will be from three to eight. On Tuesday here, here from three to eight. As many of you as can, we'd like you to come in the beginning of it rather than the end of it. And the reason is that there will be people that will be working that won't be able to get away, people traveling. And so we'd like uh, people to find it convenient to come at eight. And what we really want to avoid is having a huge line. And so if you can space yourselves out, almost always with visitations, the earlier you come, the easier it is, okay? So that will be three to eight Tuesday, all right? Then Wednesday, for people traveling who can't make it on Tuesday, there will be another hour of visitation. It's going to be out at uh, Lifeway Baptist on 46, just past Richard's small engine, okay? And uh, so you'll be able to park in the parking lot, and they have an overflow room, and so we couldn't possibly do it here in in this sanctuary. And so uh, that's Wednesday at 7 o'clock, I mean 11 o'clock. However, there will be one hour of visitation prior to the service. From 10 to 11, there will be visitation. But you don't really want to use that unless you couldn't come anytime on Tuesday. Then as soon as the service is over, uh, those who are able will drive over here, and Adam will be the first adult that will be planted in our graveyard. And I just think that's so sweet. I was talking to Mary Lee about it, and I said, you know, you remember that Sunday where I was saying, you know, I'd like to have the blood of Christ thrown, and Adam stands up and comes walking forward. You remember this? And he's like, throw it on me. You know, we were talking about the blood of Christ cleansing us, you know. Well, I think if we had said to Adam, Adam, we need somebody to volunteer to be the first seed planted out in the graveyard. I think Adam would have said I'll do it, (laughs) you know. (laughs) He wouldn't have wanted to put you through it, but I think he would have done that. Adam was always ready to do whatever was needed. And that's going to be actually our sermon today. So, to reiterate, 3 to 8, Visitation Tuesday. Visitation again from 10 to 11 out at Lifeway. Tuesday visitation is here. Out at Lifeway, service at 11. Afterwards, drive back, plant Adam. And then will those, you know, closer friends and family will come in here and we'll have lunch. Okay? Let's pray. Father, we thank you for Adam. We thank you for the Apostle Paul. We thank you for the men that you put among us. And we pray, Father, that we will not be bitter and self-pitying 
but that we will give ourselves to be used by you to build your church and kingdom as Adam himself was. We pray that the words of my mouth and the meditation of all our hearts will be acceptable in your sight, you who are our strength and our redeemer. Amen. So, in 2 Corinthians 1, we have the follow-up letter to the Apostle Paul writing 1 Corinthians. And 1 Corinthians is something like a spanking. Eh, I wouldn't say a spanking, I'd say a whipping. It is intense, it is disciplinary, and about the time you think that he's done, he adds something else. And it just goes on and on and on through the book, because the Corinthian church was really, really sinful. And so he's written this letter, and and now it's time to write another letter. And, you know, if you read what he writes to the Corinthians, what you realize is the Apostle Paul never gets cut any slack, you know? Nobody ever goes light on the dude. You know, it's just this relentless criticism that this guy gets. And if you don't know that, I don't, I don't think you've ever read any letters by the Apostle Paul. You know, it's so obvious that nobody ever bothered just arguing with his doctrine when they could also slam him for his size, his eyesight, his, his, just everything they could slam him for, they slammed him for. Now, if you were to choose, if you were to choose um, something that probably you shouldn't slam the Apostle Paul for, all right, what do you think it would be? Well, how about this? All right, let's criticize the Apostle Paul for vacillating. We should all be laughing. I mean, that's like criticizing David Carell for being svelte. You know, I mean, there are a lot of wonderful things David is, but he's not actually svelte. You know, skinny is, you know, skinny. Come on, you guys, laugh. We all know who we are, right? Okay, me. You don't criticize me for being svelte. Or, you know, it would be like criticizing me for being too tactful. (laughs) Oh, all of a sudden you're willing to laugh, aren't you? (laughs) Okay. David laughed harder than anybody about that one. (laughs) Max. (laughs) (laughs) so listen dear people I want you to to listen to how the apostle Paul deals with this and I want you to put yourself in his shoes because I think it's I think it's what we need today okay and so he has had to discipline the church in Corinth that's the first letter to Corinthians now he's writing the second letter okay and he starts out with the text that drew my attention to this chapter. I thought I was going to preach this text I'm about to read to you. And then I thought, no, this is not the text I'm going to preach. But listen to the text I thought. So he starts his letter and he says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our affliction, that we will be able to, those who are in any, with the, with which we ourselves are, that's what I thought we needed. And I don't think so. We need comfort. But I realize that there's more comfort that will come to us by observing the Apostle Paul proceed to comfort. Because it's completely counterintuitive. It's not at all what we would think the Apostle Paul would go on to do. We, it doesn't develop the way you'd think, you know. If, 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 if I were doing it, you know, 
as soon as I got done writing that, I'd send Hallmark greeting cards and, you know, email chimp things and, you know, and, 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 and play bread or, or Karen Carpenter and, you know, and, you know, I'd, I'd do things that were manipulating the emotions in such a way that people would be chilled. And maybe even warm, right? That's not what the Apostle Paul does, okay? So that's premise number one. Now, from whom does this comfort come that the Apostle Paul is speaking about? He says, well, for we want you to be, we do not want you to be unaware, brethren, of our affliction. So in other words, he's talked about comforting with the comfort he's been comforted with, right? And then he says, now listen, I've suffered. I don't want you guys to be ignorant. When I say I'm going to comfort you the way I've been comforted myself, don't you think that, well, he hasn't really suffered. And so he says, for we do not want you to be unaware, brethren, of our affliction. In other words, I've been there, right? Which came to us in Asia that we were burdened excessively beyond our strength, so that we despaired even of life. How many of you had that reaction yesterday? I know I did. I'm just ready to go. You know, I don't, I really don't want to live in this world anymore. I'm just sick of it. You know, if this is what has to happen, can I please go someplace else? Like, you know, there's, you know, like, can I have a corona? You know, they're always so well taken care of when they drink Corona. You know, they're on a beach, and the wind, you know, and the trees. And And then Adam dies. And we're reminded that this is not our home. We must not be worldlings. And so the Apostle Paul says that he was so afflicted by caring for God's people that he despaired over life. And then he says, indeed, we had the sentence of death within ourselves. So, okay, he has the right to comfort us, doesn't he? We have the sentence of death in ourselves today. Okay? And then he gives a purpose statement, and the purpose statement is this, so that, you know, so God's the one that sent this all to him, Why? And he says, so that we would not trust in ourselves, but in God who raises the dead. (laughs) Okay? So that we wouldn't trust in ourselves. Now, when he says, in God who raises the dead, we immediately think about Adam. We say, and in fact, that's what you said, you remember? (laughs) Immediately, immediately when they stopped working on Adam, Don says, God can raise him. Remember saying that? Yeah. God can raise him. And we know this is true. But was the Apostle Paul just speaking about raising Adam or somebody else from the dead? No. The death that the Apostle Paul suffered was the death of ministry. It was the death of carrying a church on his back. Carrying his family. Carrying his friendships, carrying the discipline of the doctrine of the New Testament church. Okay, don't make any mistake about that. That is the raising from the dead that Paul gave himself to. What would you call Galatians, but the raising from the dead? And seriously, the book of 1 Corinthians? That's raising from the dead. It's just mind-boggling to think the Apostle Paul dignifies that church with the label church, you know? And you read Calvin in book four, he goes on and on about the horrible condition of the church of Corinth, and yet it was the church of Jesus Christ. And so he says that the reason he is to the point of death is so that he would not trust in himself, that we would not trust in ourselves, but in God who raises the dead, okay? Now, I want to say this to you and say it clearly, and I got a frown, at least one that I saw clearly in the first service when I said this. So I I knew, 
I got a rebound, so I had hit my mark. Okay? So listen to this. God is the enemy of self-worth. God is the enemy of self-worth. God is the enemy of self-affirmation. God is the enemy of self-dependence. God is the enemy of self-trust. He afflicts us to drive us away from such evil self-reliance so that instead we will trust in him and him alone. Okay? It's just true all the way through Scripture. Now, why should we trust in him? Well, because he raises the dead. John eleven twenty five and 26, Lazarus has died, and Jesus says to Lazarus' sister Martha, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me will live even if he dies. And everyone who lives and believes in me will never die. And so Adam is not dead. He's asleep. <laughs> it feels like he's dead, you know, but he isn't. I've been regularly thinking since he died, which he didn't do. I've been regularly thinking, does he know I'm doing this? Does he know I'm thinking this? You know? Usually I think that about my parents, you know? (laughs) But I'm thinking about Adam. He's not dead. We'll plan his body, but his spirit lives on. And I don't mean that the way some cosmic yin-yang back home, you know, Mother Nature, granola, chipmunk, you know, cosmic, karmic person would say it. You know, we're not talking spirit here. Spirit in the sky. You know, we're talking that Adam himself, his personality, his manliness, everything about him lives. But his body will be planted, okay? Jesus said it. And everyone who lives and believes in me will never die. Now, the setup. The Apostle Paul has to explain his absence from Corinth. As always, with the believers there in that church, he was under attack. People said this, and people said that about him, and others listened and thought about the attacks, wondering if maybe they weren't true. There was constant criticism of the Apostle Paul. And so every time the Apostle Paul had dealings with this church, but really any church, he had to defend himself. I remember Elizabeth Elliot saying, I never defend myself. And I just felt so awful because I did. And I think it was about 10 years before I realized Elizabeth Elliot was an idiot. Because the Apostle Paul's constantly defending himself. What's wrong with the Apostle Paul that Elizabeth Elliot gets it right? And then you realize that when you lead the flock, you can't be more concerned about your dignity than their well-being. Has anybody ever felt dignified changing a diaper? Isn't that what it takes to raise children? And so how could you be dignified in caring for sheep? And so the Apostle Paul has a problem. The problem is that he indicated he was going to come visit him, and then he didn't. So that's the central issue. Right out of the gate, that's what he's being criticized for. So in verse 15, he says, In this confidence, I intended at first to come to you so that you might twice receive a blessing. And immediately we think, Twice a blessing. What's the blessing, you know? So he explains that actually he's the blessing, (laughs) you know? It's kind of cute. He wanted to give them twice a blessing. He says that is, so here's the blessing. He's going to give them twice. To pass your way into Macedonia and again from Macedonia to come to you and by you to be helped on my journey to Judea. So in other words, he was going to stop in Corinth on the way to Macedonia and then on the way back from Macedonia, he was going to go to Judea, he was going to stop again. So that's twice the blessing is that he's going to come and visit them, okay? 
Now, what was the scuttlebutt, the criticism, the gossip about him? Well, they were saying that the Apostle Paul was double-minded and double-tongued man who couldn't make a decision, who couldn't be forthright and direct, who couldn't stand firm, and therefore couldn't be depended upon or trusted. (laughs) And that's why I started out by saying, I mean, if you're going to come up with anything to say about the Apostle Paul, would you accuse him of being a vacillator? Okay? Look at the heart of this accusation and the Apostle Paul's response. Now, this is, this is the rest of the text we're going to look at. Let me read it. This is God's word, and it's eternally true. Therefore, I was not vacillating. When I intended to do this, in other words, to make the trip, was I, or what I purpose, do I purpose according to the flesh, so that with me there will be yes, yes and no, no? at the same time as in italics because it's not in the original text. But as God is faithful, our word to you is not yes and no. For the Son of God, Christ Jesus, who was preached among you by us, by me and Silvanus and Timothy, was not yes and no, but is yes in him. For as many as are the promises of God in him, they are yes. Therefore also through him is our amen to the glory of God through us. Now, He who establishes us with you in Christ and anointed us in God, who also sealed us and gave us the spirit in our hearts as a pledge. But I call God as witness to my soul that to spare you, I did not come again to Corinth, not that we lorded over your faith, but are workers with you for your joy. For in your faith you are standing firm. This is the word of the Lord. Now then, precisely what was the charge? The charge was that the Apostle Paul vacillated in his intentions. That he purposed according to the flesh and the weakness of the flesh rather than the power and spirit of God. That the Apostle Paul's intentions and will started with yes, then moved to yes and no, and then finally ended with no. Therefore, I was not vacillating when I intended to do this, was I? Or what I purpose, do I purpose according to the flesh? So with me, there will be yes, yes, and no, and no. And what is his response? Well, he begins his defense by contradicting the accusers. He begins by stating, for the record, what? He says, I was not vacillating. Now, what is vacillation? Well, it's sort of literally it's to purpose lightly you know the the, the dudes lighten the loafers really vacillation is the central character trait of every man here this morning it is what manhood has unbecome it used to be that they would say that it's the privilege of women to be uh come on what's the word fickle But we've changed it. Now women have to be the strong ones and every man is fickle. (laughs) You know? I mean, oh. And so this is what the Apostle Paul was being accused of. To purpose slightly, to hesitate in the decision, and then set out half-heartedly to be fickle, changeable, undependable, essentially to be a man of his emotions rather than a man of decision and truth and firmness. Okay, that was the accusation against the Apostle Paul. In other words, to be vacillating is to be a man today in our own time. To say one thing at first, another at second, and a third thing at third. To say yes, yes, and no, and then no. And this is what the Apostle Paul is being accused of. And he says, I was not vacillating. Rather, says the Apostle Paul, he took his strength and purpose and direction and will and decisions from God. Verse 18, but as God is faithful, our word to you is not yes and no. Now, be careful here because you're going to think listening to this that it's all about the trip. And so you're going to think that the words were, I'm going to visit you, and then he doesn't show up. But that's not what's being talked about. Do you think, you've had the benefit of hearing the end of the passage, do you think that the people in Corinth really wanted the Apostle Paul to visit them? No, no, you know, your mother says, 
you just wait until your father comes home. And so you say, yippee, yippee. No. He had just written a letter to them that was unbelievably disciplinary. And so he says to them, I'm going to come visit, you know? And they're like, oh, yeah, 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 yeah. No. And so then why do they complain that he's fickle? Why do they complain that he's a vacillator? Remember, the word is the doctrine of Scripture. That is always what's at stake is God's gospel and God's truth. And so when he says this, he says that his word to the Christians was not yes and no. It wasn't in connection with his travel, but really the underlying charge was that his word as yes and no concerning doctrine, concerning what he preached and taught. That was always what the battle was, right? It was about what he was teaching as truth. You just read his letters, you can see it. And so think about what the Apostle Paul taught. Think about his preaching. Think about what he wrote. And then think once more, was the Apostle Paul a vacillator? It's, it's, it's actually humorous, you know? So, for instance, in Galatians 1, verse 8, but even, he writes this, he says, but even if we are an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to what we have preached to you, he is to be damned. Is that a vacillator? <laughs> no. And then he says... As we have said before, and you think, oh no, what is he going to say again? As we have said before, so again now, if any man is preaching a gospel contrary to what you received, he is to be damned. And then he says one of my favorite things. I have a lot of favorites with the Apostle Paul, but this is one of my favorite. So he said this twice in a row, right? Does it sound like he's vacillating? He's double-minded, you know? And then he says, for am I now seeking the favor of men or God? (laughs) Or am I striving to please men? If I were still trying to please men, I would not be a bondservant of Christ. Oh, listen, we have to be so... um, We have to be so thankful for the Apostle Paul. I mean, can you imagine a man? And you know the way he's he's suffered physically. You know that list. But can you imagine that this man knew every situation he went into, that he would be abandoned by everybody else? and he would have to speak God's truth. So that he says, look, like I just said, let him be damned. Now, am I trying to please men? In other words, do you like that? That's what he's really saying. Well, if you like that, and I'm trying to please you, I'm not God's servant. And you just think about the devastation that is to the conservative church in America today. That is led by men who have no higher aspiration than pleasing their congregation enough that it grows. And this man is being accused of being a vacillator. It it really is 
well, I shouldn't say hilarious, but it's hilarious. The Apostle Paul, double-minded, indecisive, fickle. (laughs) Oh, my goodness. He continues his defense, but as God is faithful, our word to you is not yes and no, for the Son of God, Christ Jesus, who is preached among you by us, by me and Sylvanus and Timothy, was not yes and no, but is yes in him. The doctrine preached by the Apostle Paul and his two companions, Sylvanus and Timothy, there in Corinth sometime beforehand was not yes and no, but it was yes in Jesus. Yes in Jesus. And then he says, is. Okay, so it's present tense. It is still yes in Jesus. To this day, it is still yes in Jesus. Calvin says, thus accordingly, those accordingly, have no ground to boast that they are ministers of Christ. In other words, people have no grounds to be proud of the fact that they're pastors. Who point, who paint Jesus in various colors with a view to their own advantage. Does that make sense to you? In other words, you don't highlight the facets of Jesus, the colors of Jesus, right? In order to to gain an audience at church. He says they have no grounds to boast that, you know, that they have a large church. There was a guy in Geneva at the time of Calvin, and he was so good with young men. You know, there are twerps on the internet who are very good with young men. <laughs> okay? And what do they do? Well, they paint Jesus in colors that they know will appeal to young men. Okay? And so there was this guy in Geneva, and he preached in a way that all the young men loved him. And so instead of staying in their parish, they would go and listen to this guy preaching. So you know what Calvin and the other pastors in Geneva did? They went and disciplined the man and told him he could not preach that way anymore. (laughs) What was it? Well, you know, it was erudite. And really culturally engaged. And he probably had a you know, nice hair. Because how do you appeal to young men unless you have a big beard or nice hair? He says, men like this should not boast, Calvin says, for he alone is the true Christ in whom there appears that uniform and unvarying yes which Paul declares to be characteristic of him. Our Lord was Jesus Christ was not yes and no, but simply yes. His name shall be Jesus, for he shall save his people from their sins. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Now I can imagine at this point some of you are thinking, well, you know, that's not yes, that's no. And I say, no, it's yes. You think about your love for Jesus, if you're a believer, and what is your love for Jesus for? Well, your love is for him saying yes. To what question, you may say. And I say to the question is, does God forgive sins? What other question brings us to Jesus? There is no other question that we have. Our only question is, does God forgive sins? That's it. And if you ask that question, (laughs) joy of joys, the answer is yes. And if you won't ask that question, you do not belong to God. You are not saved. You are not loved by God. You're on your highway to hell and you might as well just sing the song because the only people who belong to God are those like Christian who are drowning the burden on their back of their sin and they say to God, do you forgive sins? And he says, yes. You say, well, that's not a positive response, you know. That's negative. And I say, well, it's negative to the proud man. 
but it's yes to the man that's dead in his trespasses and sins. And so behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. That is yes. I am the door, says Jesus. That is yes. I am the living water. That is yes. I am the good shepherd. That is yes. I am the resurrection and the life. That is yes. Our Lord Jesus Christ was not yes and no, but simply yes. And it was Sylvanus and Timothy and the Apostle Paul's yes in Jesus. In Christ alone, they took their stand. Now he continues, verse 20, for as many as are the promises of God, in him they are yes. Therefore also through him is our amen to the glory of God through us. In other words, God has said yes, okay? And you know what we say? We say what? (laughs) Amen! I wish you guys were more responsive during worship. You're so repressed. Amen. We should be saying amen all the time without even thinking about it. And so that's all, the, that's all that he says to describe his work for the church of Christ and being a shepherd. He says, you know, we guys, we, we say amen to God, yes. And that's for the glory of God. And what a self-effacing way of describing the work that the Apostle Paul does. It's like, you know, it's like the guy that walks through life going like this. You know, I ain't here, I ain't here. Amen, I ain't here, I ain't here. To the glory of God, I ain't. You know what I'm saying? It's like he's hiding himself, the Apostle Paul is. To the glory of God through us. Verse 21, now he who establishes us with you in Christ and anointed us as God, who also sealed us and gave us the spirit in our hearts as a pledge. I don't know what I'm going to preach Wednesday yet, but there will be a number of people here who won't be believers, okay? And so the question is, uh, how do you preach the gospel? And so talking recently with Jonathan about uh, his missions work, it's very interesting that what I've been drawn to is where Jesus says, it's good that I go because I'll send the comforter, right? You know, and in some ways I feel like this about your dad, you know, that we need the Holy Spirit now, you know, because he's gone and we know we need something. You know, we all feel this very much. It's not just you. So Jesus says, it's good that I go, that I'll send a comforter, right? And here he says, in defending himself, he who establishes us with you in Christ and anointed us as God, who also sealed us and gave us the spirit in our hearts as a pledge. Sealed, gave his spirit as a pledge. Holy Spirit, sealed, given, pledged. Not Holy Spirit pledged, but Holy Spirit pledged the inheritance of eternal life, okay? Now, when Jesus says, it's good that I go so that I will send a comforter, you all know he said that, right? Because it's one of the weirdest things said in the Gospels. How could it possibly be good that, the Holy, that Jesus Christ leaves, right? Do you know what it says next? He goes on to explain why the Holy Spirit is needed and is better than him. Do you remember why? Do you remember? Anybody remember? Except those of you that were in the first service, you know. What he goes on immediately and says, the, the reason it's good for the Holy Spirit to come is that he will convict the world of sin and righteousness and judgment. Now, this is weird. What comfort is that? Right? I mean, it really is weird. When every single pastor in the world today is running away from convicting the world of sin and righteousness and judgment, no, not me. That that's the promise of what the Holy Spirit's ministry. And you know, I'm like, no, I'll take Clausalalia, please. No, how about some anointing and healings, please? How about a prophetic word? Uh, No, it's good that that he'll come because he'll convict the world of sin and righteousness and judgment. But listen, the fact is, 
That is what the Holy Spirit does with us. And it is the greatest joy of our lives. It's the only thing that makes us able to face death. We have been convicted of sin. We have been shown the righteousness of Jesus. (laughs) And then we're reassured about the judgment. We know about sin. We know about the righteousness of Christ to cover our sin. And we know that the judgment will stand. So let's not have these sentimental, sort of soft kind of things about the Holy Spirit. Okay? Let's have a very realistic view that we know the Holy Spirit is working most who he is when we are convicted of our sin. I know that's contrary to all the Pentecostal crud, you know? and charismatic, and, you know, all the fizzies at the drinking fountain. And so the Holy Spirit was put in our hearts as a pledge given to us. And then the text ends with the Apostle Paul saying this, for all who are led by the Spirit of God, these are sons of God, Or no, I'm sorry, that's Romans. I'm not going to read that. So he ends by saying this, but I call God as witness to my soul. So remember, he's still on trial. But I call God as witness to my soul that to spare you, I did not come again to Corinth. Now, how does that work? Well, the apostle Paul had just written them a hard letter. And so he's saying, do I go, do I not go? Do I go, do I not go? It wasn't that he was vacillating. It was that he didn't want to go. Why didn't he want to go? He just said it. I wanted to spare you. Why did he want to spare him? Well, because he had just written them this intense letter, and he didn't want to have to go to them and say again in person what he'd already said in a letter that was already hard. In other words, the apostle Paul was sympathetic and wanting to comfort them. And then they know that full well. And then they have the audacity to accuse him of being vacillating. They know his heart. They know that he withdrew from the idea of having to come to them in person and say it. Why? Well, because the apostle Paul wanted them to repent. He didn't want to have to talk to them in person. I call God as witness to my soul that to spare you I did not come again to Corinth. Not that we lord it over your faith, but are workers with you for your joy, for in your faith you are standing firm. (laughs) And so I read this and I thought, yeah, that's for Adam. That's Adam. I mean, it really is Adam. Who has he lorded it over here? He did not lord it over us. He came alongside us tenderly and loved us and exhorted us and admonished us. And listen, because it was spiritual authority, we could take it or leave it. Do you understand? There are a few cases of such rank wickedness in the church that he had to discipline. But for every disciplinary act of the Board of Elders, there were probably three, four, five hundred of admonitions. I mean, he never stopped admonishing. You know, I was up writing on this book on marriage, and during the week and a half I was up there, I got called by Adam twice. And this has been typical of him. And one of them was a very painful thing where, (laughs) I don't know how to describe it except to say that He didn't know how to deal with something because on the one hand, it wasn't right, but on the other hand, he was sympathetic towards the person that wasn't right. And I didn't have any sympathy for the person that wasn't right. I heard about it and it's like, whoop, 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 you know? 
And it wasn't anything in my life, okay? In other words, it wasn't anything personal with me. And Adam then proceeds to describe why he's sympathetic. And like, I remember thinking on the phone, Adam, seriously? You know, I didn't say it, but do you have to be so godly? Because it's just a rebuke to me. You know what I'm saying? It's like, oh, please, Adam, come on. Grow up and be a sinner. <laughs> you know? And then the other thing was a family in this church. And he had talked to them. And he called me up heavy, heavy with concern for them spiritually. And, you know, we, we entered in visually through the thingamabugger last week, the broad, broad livecast, whatever it's called. And he was sitting right there. And it was like five minutes before the service started. And I think, who was sitting next to him? There's one child. Who was sitting with your dad before the service last week? I forget which one of you it was. And all of a sudden, Adam stands up, and he walks over here, and he just shepherds the sheep. You know? And I remember watching him as he did this, calling Mary Lee's attention to it. That's Adam. You know, I wasn't here, and there was a shepherd. You know, the sheep. You know? So listen, here's the application, and I'll be done. God has disciplined us. God has disciplined us. And we love God for it. And we don't enjoy the discipline. It is not happy. It is awful. And you say, well, why would you call it God's discipline? And I say, well, can I please call it what his widow has called it toward to me? Do you have any, like, Hallmark card, you know, precious angel spin to put on this? That it is not all I could think of from the time I was woken up in bed yesterday. Samuel called me, and I, we knew at the beginning that he was almost surely gone. And all I could think of over and over again was body blow, you know, just Body blow, you know? Body blow. And so you go through the day and you see how everybody has been slammed. And then you have a choice, and your choice is, do you trust God? Do you trust him? And so God has taken... Uh, one man who I respect more than any other man in this room said to me this morning, God took the best man among us. And I know you've heard that kind of credit funerals. I don't say that credit funerals, but I say it this morning. If you'd been in that hospital and seen the medical people, they were inconsolable yesterday. Inconsolable. I've never seen anything like it in a hospital. Come up to Don and say, we loved your husband. And now God has taken him. Do you hear me? And so the question is, number one, will you receive this from the hand of God as his love? And I think everybody here is willing to say, hey, yeah. Right? Isn't that about where we're at? And so then the application to each of you as individuals. Twofold. Number one. Think very carefully about what Adam has admonished and exhorted you about. There are very few people here that he hasn't in one way or another done that with. 
And would you please honor his memory by taking it to heart? You know, is that so difficult? Wouldn't that be a good tribute to give? Forget the stupid memorials. Have a memorial of obedience to a shepherd. You with me? Come on, guys. And then second, we're dying out. And you young men need to stop vacillating and being in bondage to your emotions and your indecisiveness and the fact that your mama don't love you. And you need to step up to the plate and love the church. Stop sinning. Stop being precious with your hair. Stop being unfaithful to your wife. Do you love Jesus? And if you love Jesus, there's one way to love him, and that is to love his church. And the church needs shepherds. And we are dying. So you remember Adam. And be like Adam. One last statement. Um, The thing I think over and over about with Adam is that I don't think Adam was ever aware that he lived. You know how so many of us were so, so aware that we're living? You know, if we could watch ourselves in a mirror while we walked and primped, we would. And I can't even conceive of Adam primping. You know, I think it was probably because he knew he was ugly. No, Adam was a man, and they're not making them like that anymore. And so you young men emulate Adam. Don't emulate me, I'm a vacillator. But you emulate Adam, because we need you desperately, okay? Father, we pray that you will feed us all day today and up through the funeral. Father, we pray particularly for those who worked with Adam and knew him and loved him but do not believe. Father, would you use the witness of Dawn and her children and all of the flock of this church to bring men and women under the ministry of the Spirit so that they become convicted of their sin, of the righteousness of Jesus Christ, and of the judgment throne of God. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.